0: And gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism. Life. RFM we are live with our audience another night here we are Mormonism live how are you doing tonight I'm doing so great Bill thank you so much for inviting me again on this show yeah and I love the festive scarf my friend that is a little bit of Christmas flavor
1: it was a gift it's cashmere
0: cashmere nice that's got to feel good around the old neck that's nice so good let me tell you yeah here we are we are on the eve of Christmas Eve right tomorrow's Christmas Eve we're rocking and rolling. Uh, I'm really excited about tonight. It's going to be a lot of fun. You and I have been talking for the last week, uh, trying to make uh, some use of this Atlantic article that came out where President Nelson was supposed to have been interviewed, but it really wasn't much of an interview, right? Like there isn't a whole lot of President Nelson in this. I think most of it ended up on the cutting room floor. I think it did. I think that's the case. So we picked this Atlantic article. Uh, Let me pull up my... My notes here really fast. Um, Gentleman by the name of McKay Coppins. Yes, I, I printed it out. It prints out to about 24 pages without the pictures. It is long. It is
1: a classic Atlantic article, I think.
0: Yeah, I listened to the audio and it was about an hour and a half, if I'm not mistaken. McKay Coppins, do you know much about this guy? I don't, but there's a picture
1: of him in the article. And I've got to say, he looks for all the world like Truman Capote. Yeah, well, there you go. He does. He looks like Truman Capote. I mean, and I'm not saying that derogatorily. I imagine he gets this a lot, that he looks like Truman Capote, who, of course, is a famous writer, so that's a compliment of sorts to him. But by the way, by the way, here's my gag for tonight. Okay, you ready? Let's see it. Okay. What book does a Mormon Truman Capote write? Uh, I I don't know. The answer is In Cold Blood, Atonement. (laughs) Oh, that... That maybe Yoda could have written that one too. Hey, that gag cost me a hundred bucks. So I hope it was good.
0: You paid a hundred for that one, huh?
1: Yeah. These okay. are the jokes folks. Sorry.
0: So let's jump into it. There is, um, well, let, like, I guess I just say this too, and we're going to do this. And I, I hope our listeners can tolerate this. We we really do need donations to keep this going. We're putting a lot of time and energy into it. Uh, it's a weekly night that we're setting aside. There's a lot of effort that goes into it. So if folks, if you can, if you're able Uh, If you're not, no biggie. We're gonna we're gonna keep trying. We're gonna keep trying to do this on a weekly basis as much as we can. But if you can go to MormonismLive.org, hit the donate button, and just donate a few bucks. If you can donate five bucks a month, ten bucks a month, fifty bucks a month, a hundred bucks a month, or a one time donation is fine too. That would help out a bunch. Um, Now let's move on to this article. So let me play our our first soundbite because when I first heard this RFM, I thought what was going to happen was we were going to have some really, uh, really good questions. Um, and I expected that to be the case. And here, while you're finding that bill, can I go
1: ahead and talk a little bit about my background with this article? Please. Okay. Um you came up with this idea, by the way, for everybody out there. Here's the deal is that uh, Bill picks the subject matter for one episode. Then I pick for the next episode and then we go back and forth. And so Bill picked this idea for this episode. So he's kind of in charge and I have to rem- remember that. Please remind me of that if it seems like I get out of control here. But but I read this article and I really didn't get anything out of it. It, it seemed pretty straightforward. It seemed pretty um obvious. There wasn't a lot to comment on. In other words, so my feeling is why bother commenting about something that doesn't need any comment? And I was looking in the internet and basically there were two responses that I was seeing among uh, members of the church or people who are not members anymore. And the people who were TBMs were saying that this this article was too hard on the Mormon church and wasn't fair. And the people who were ex-Mormons were saying it was too easy on the Mormon church and it wasn't hard hitting enough. And that's really pretty much all that I saw about it on the internet. And that didn't seem like a lot to fill a podcast, frankly. So I read it again, still didn't get a lot out of it. I listened to it. And this is what Bill has the audio to because they have someone who reads the article. And there's an audio component to the article that you can click on, on the Atlantic web page where they have this article. I listened to it, didn't get a lot out of it. I'm kind of getting desperate, actually. So Monday morning, just this past Monday morning on the way to work, I listened to it again as I'm driving in. And finally... Finally, I think I started understanding what it was that the author was getting at and the points he was trying to make. And it started catalyzing a lot of thoughts in my mind. The catalyst theory here at Radio Free Mormon and Mormonism Live was in full force. And so I want to share some of those thoughts with you.
0: I'm inserting this the following day. The device that we use to insert sound clips failed And this is going to happen from time to time as we work out doing things live. RFM at this point uh, gives me some time to restart my computer and re-enter the live stream with everything working uh, by going uh, into some dialogue here. And so you'll hear RFM picking up. And then when I come back on, I've got things resolved and we get back to uh, moving through the show. Thank you.
1: One of the main uh, theses of this article is that uh, it's called the most American religion, Mormonism, the most American religion. And I think the surface level uh, basic thrust of the argument of this rather long article is that Mormonism being a quintessentially American religion has struggled really since its inception to be accepted by the broader American community. And it traces Mormonism from its uh, its roots all the way up through Brigham Young and into the 20th century and basically outlines how it is that Mormonism finally achieved its goal of being accepted by the American community basically in the 40s and 50s when it achieved this um, sort of leave it to beaver kind of uh, quality with the home and with June, June Cleaver working in the home and Ward going out to work and coming back in and then, you know, uh, interacting with uh, Beaver and Wally. So it's very, very Mormon, this kind of idea. And then the article goes on to suggest that uh, Mormonism achieved this acceptance in the American community right at about the same time that America went through its own identity crisis. Starting in the 60s and going on to today where America's kind of moved away. At least the majority of Americans have moved away from that 1950s kind of leave it to beaver lifestyle. Whereas Mormonism has stayed pretty much put And stuck in that lifestyle. Okay, Bill's gone. Now we can talk about Bill. Okay. Uh, Bill is actually a great guy. But what I'm going to want to do is, as I think about this article, it breaks down into a couple of main sub points. And these are the things that got me thinking. And one of the main points is, is that Mormonism wants to be accepted so badly that it will say almost anything in order to be accepted. It will kind of reject a lot of its core beliefs in order to be accepted. And now when when I'm saying that, what I mean is when Mormons are talking to the outside world, to the non-Mormon world, there is this dual uh, tension going on with most Mormons. And I'm talking about TBM Mormons, what I used to be, I can still remember very vividly, which is part of me wants to be very Mormon, wants to be uh, bold in my beliefs, wants to claim my beliefs, Uh, But on the other hand, I also want to be accepted by the non-Mormon community. And there's part of me, a big part of me as a Mormon that recognizes that a lot of beliefs that I have as a TBM are going to sound pretty odd to the outside world, to my non-Mormon friends and neighbors. And therefore, because of that, I am going to, and I've got lots of examples of it in my life, and I'll bet you do in yours too, where I shade those beliefs or cover those beliefs or don't talk about those beliefs, those odd beliefs, or modify them in such a way as to uh, appear more normal. So at the same time that I'm trying to be accepted by my non-Mormon friends and neighbors, I am sort of, uh, well, abridging or I don't want to say violating that's too strong a word, but that kind of idea to my true Mormonism, I can express my true Mormonism pretty much when I'm at church among other Mormons, but with the outside world, I have to uh, do something different than that. And this writer McKay Coppins, he talks about how he was with uh, Mitt Romney in his 2012 presidential campaign. And he was in fact, the only Mormon who was in that pool of people following him around the country. And he recognized that Mitt Romney did not want to talk about his Mormonism, not in any detail. He didn't want to own it. If he had to, he would talk about it in general terms, such as family and patriotism and how Mormonism stands for those kinds of things. But when it came to specific things about his religion, then he didn't want to talk about it. And I remember this part isn't in the article, but I remember somebody asking him at some point, whether he actually believed as a Mormon that the garden of Eden was in Missouri. And you can tell at that point, he became very uncomfortable. He did not want to talk about that. He did not own it as his belief, which really, I expect that that's what he believes. And it came across as somebody who was embarrassed of their beliefs. Not only do they have odd beliefs, but he is embarrassed to actually talk about them or to acknowledge that he believes them. Now, Bill is back. Um, are you still clicking? Do you think you have it figured out, Bill?
0: I think so. Let's try one more time and see if this works, and I'm hoping it does. My notebook is full of
2: reporterly questions to ask about the church's future, the painful tensions within the faith over race and LGBTQ issues, and the unprecedented series of changes Nelson has implemented in his brief time as prophet. But as we bow our heads... I realize that I'm also here for something else. Yeah. So that's the end of the first one. So he talks about
0: having these tough questions and he's, he's ready to tackle the LGBT issue. He's ready to tackle other things that are going on. And, and then he kind of says, but then I kind of like get away from my questions. And I realize that this conversation may be also about something else. Mm -hmm. And it's that something else that he spends the most, uh, the majority of his time on, um, Your thoughts on, because he does set his audience up to think that he's going to interview President Nelson, and he's going to ask be asking lots of tough questions, and neither one of those really ever kind of get off the ground. No, I
1: think later on, there's some jumping back and forth in time in the article, and uh, I think he does get to some questions about that. There are not really good answers, but it is apparent to me, this is back in May or April, by the way, when he's interviewing President Nelson and he scores this interview with President Nelson even during a pandemic. And uh, I think that what he wants to do is, this is not about gotcha questions with President Nelson. This ends up being about something else and something I think possibly more important than gotcha questions with President Nelson. I know as I read through this, I thought "There's there's a factual issue here with his portrayal of Mormon history I could nitpick at, or there's something over here I could nitpick at. But then I thought, wait a second, he's not writing a history paper about Mormonism. What he's trying to do is he's writing it in such a way at, with broad strokes in order to illustrate his major themes. And as I was talking to the audience about while you were um, off the air, take, trying to take care of the audio issue, Bill, I was talking about that and how this desire of Mormons to be accepted by non-Mormons. By the way, Bill, can I ask you a question here? Please. Okay. Now, as a TBM, I would probably be offended if someone suggested to me that I had a desire to be accepted by my non-Mormon friends, and that in some ways that might even trump my TBMness, my loyalty to the church. But then it occurred to me that I have an experience, and I think probably everybody in the church has the same experience, okay? And the experience is this. Uh, you are at home. The missionaries have invited themselves over to your house to share a spiritual thought, And you know perfectly well what's coming at the end of that spiritual thought because you've been down this road before. And the missionaries then ask you for names of your neighbors and friends that they could go to to see if they would be interested in hearing the missionary discussions. And especially they would like it if you would allow you allow them to use your name as a referral. I know this happened to me on a number of occasions. Has that ever happened to you, Bill? And if so, how did that make you feel?
0: Yeah, numerous times I would be sitting at the Johnson Farm uh, or Kirtland, uh, Ohio, going to some of the stuff there. Or we went to Nauvoo once. And, and it, the missionaries, when they take you on these tours and you go around and see everything, when they get done, they give you these little index cards and say, hey, you know, is there anybody that's on your mind? Is there somebody you'd like to share the gospel with? Is there somebody that we could go help or we could maybe we'd be aware of and we could stop by and talk to them. And I always felt, to be honest, I felt embarrassment. I felt like I don't really want to put my friend's name down. I don't really want to put something down on this card, but I felt guilty and needed to do it.
1: Exactly. And that's how I always felt. And I, I'm guessing we are not alone. But the only reason I bring this up is because that crystallizes this tension. We want to be loyal Mormons. We want to do what it is we're supposed to do. We want to share the gospel. Of course we do because we're Mormons and Mormonism is what everybody needs to hear and give the, give the chance to accept because that's the only thing that'll make them happy and get them to the celestial kingdom, right? Yeah. But on the other hand, we're worried about offending our non-Mormon friends or neighbors and therefore not being accepted by them so it's this this desire to be accepted by non-mormons that even on an individual level that I've experienced makes me tend to not be as open and upfront about my religious beliefs as I might otherwise be
0: yeah and I think I felt much of the same I I knew that most people were going to turn me down and while I thought it was important I believed in the importance of it I was I felt, Uh, fear of sharing this thing with them that they would see as weird and not necessary in their life. And it would only cause some kind of fracture in our relationship. Right. And this uh, is something
1: that not only happens individually, but also happens institutionally. And it's both of these things that is, that are being shown by the author in this article. Um, By the way, a lot of these examples I'm coming up with on my own, he shares his own examples from when he was a student, like, you know, people in his, high school class, making fun of his uh, maybe having more than one mom. He's like the only Mormon in his school. And uh, you know, his response is to laugh along with it because, you know, you got to sort of laugh at it to get along, not to be offensive because you want to be accepted. Right. Right. And what happens on this individual level happens with me, happened with him resonated with me, happened to you. Apparently I'm betting every uh, Mormon or former Mormon who's listening to this can identify having that happen in their lives but it also happens on an institutional level. And the classic example of that is Gordon B Hinckley when he was being interviewed back a number of years ago, when he was asked the question about whether Mormons believe that God was once a man. Mm-hmm. And instead of owning that and saying, yes, we do. He did what Mormons typically do, which is he dodged the question. And that's where his famous quote comes from. I don't know that we teach that. I don't know that we emphasize that.
0: Yeah, and to to add to that, when I watched Gordon B. Hinckley do that, and I I loved Gordon B. Hinckley. Again, if I could go back to um, all my time in the church of reading and learning about the prophets and experiencing a few of them firsthand, um, Gordon B. Hinckley is the one who stands out as the most genuine And yet, as he's having this conversation with uh, different conversations, some with Larry King, some with Mike Wallace, and as he's having these conversations and they're asking the tough questions, and I see my leader dodging those questions, I'm going like, "I, I know he knows this stuff. Like, I know this stuff. I know he knows it. Why isn't he just answering straightforward? Why doesn't he just own that we're a peculiar people? Why does he have to dodge it? And then the next general conference, when he tries to, they try to recoup that cachet, and we'll get to cachet in a moment in this interview, mm-hmm. when they, he tries to recoup that cachet saying like, don't you guys worry about it. I know my Mormonism. And I forget the exact quote, but he's basically saying, look, I know my stuff. Don't fret about it. It, it still struck me as like this, couldn't we have just answered the question? But you, re- you realize, and I did in the moment he's answering it that way, that we don't teach it, we don't emphasize it. I realize he's embarrassed mm-hmm. by the doctrine. Mm-hmm. And, and so now I need to feel embarrassed by the doctrine. Everybody who watched that, who was paying attention,
1: whether member or non-member, realized two things. Number one, it might be three things by the time I'm done. Number one, that it was true.
0: Yeah.
1: That Mormonism did believe that because he didn't say, no, that's not true. Right? He hedged it. Right. right. Number two, they realized that he wasn't answering the question. And number three, they realized that it was because he was embarrassed by it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, it reminds me of Oaks and Ballard saying, these will be the questions we avoid. It reminds me of David Bednar when he was asked a question. He said, I think I'm going to change the question. I'm going to change the question and I'll answer something different. Mm -hmm. Uh, We Mormons are always presenting a different outsider versus insider story. And I think all of us recognize that there is a discrepancy between the story we tell the outsider versus the story we tell the insider. And then there's a third story, which is the real story that we avoid telling anyone.
1: Yeah, and we'll get to that. That's a great point. I did want to mention that, yeah, when Gordon B. Hinckley comes up into the next general conference, because obviously there's been some pushback because a lot of people saw this interview and a lot of people are saying, wait a second, we don't believe that now? Yeah, And th- there was blowback and he was hearing about it. So he says something along the lines of, um, I think you can all give me credit for knowing the doctrines of the church. And then there's laughter. And then everybody realizes, oh, he's just playing the Mormon game. Speaking one thing to the outside world, uh, which is uh, what milk before meat is how we characterize it. Yeah. Lying for the Lord is how other people might characterize it. But, (laughs) but objectively speaking, he doesn't want to go into the weird stuff. He wants to avoid talking about that and accentuate the stuff that he sees as more acceptable, the more common ground that he's going to have with the interviewer and with the non-member audience. But prior to this, Prior to this, reading this article and thinking about it, um, I had always characterized this as what the Mormon leaders and Mormons say to the outside world is being fake. And what they say to the inside Mormon world is what they really believe, right? Yeah. There's fake versus reality, the outside voices versus the inside voice. But after reading this article and really ponderizing on it, it struck Ponder- me that ponderizing. I love that.
0: We should there should be some t-shirts that say ponderize. There was gonna be. They were out for about 12 minutes. They disappeared quickly. But I like that term. Well, technically, I mean,
1: technically, I think it was the son-in-law's who, T-shirts who got yanked. And I yeah. think that the the main, the main line of clothing <laughs> actually proceeded to pace. I'm not sure if it's still out there. Anyway, anyway, it struck me that really, really both versions of Mormonism, the outside voice where we're uh, trying to downplay the weird stuff. They're both true Mormonism yeah they're not fake yeah. the outside one is what we do in order to be accepted of the world and in order to be accepted of the world we have a pattern in the habit now and a tradition of not speaking what we really believe yeah
0: and and aren't we all playing that game in mormonism and to some extent out and i think we'll talk about that as a conversation goes on as well so if are you ready for the soundbite number two please Okay, so soundbite number two, again, this guy just got over telling us we're going to be tough questions. He wants to begin describing the discomfort that Mormons are beginning to have and that they are moving to more liberal ground, and he uses Trump to set that up. So uh, without further ado, here is that uh, soundbite.
2: In the past few years, Mormons have become a subject of fascination for their surprising resistance to Trumpism. Unlike most of the religious right, they were decidedly unenthusiastic about Donald Trump. From 2008 to 2016, the Republican vote share declined among Latter day Saints more than any other religious group in the country. And though Trump won back some of those defectors in 2020, he continued to underperform. Joe Biden did better in Utah than any Democrat since 1964. Mormon women likely played a role in turning Arizona blue. Yeah. So
0: this soundbite strikes me. First off, I don't really trust his conclusion based on the data. Simply that Utah has become more liberal could be a matter of there being less Mormons. And now you're hearing the data from the stronger influence of people who have left the church or from a segment of people who have moved into the state of Utah. Um, I don't think it necessarily is that Mormons have moved. But he is trying to make the argument, and I think this is the important part. He's trying to make the argument that the landscape of Mormonism is changing, that believing Orthodox TBM Mormons are shifting and moving to the point where they are moving away from aspects of the conservative party into aspects of uh, the Democrat, from Republicanism to the Democrat party on at least some issues and at least on some candidates. And, and I think that's, he's trying to use that soundbite or that written text in his original article to set up uh, the conversation we're about to have. Your thoughts? Uh,
1: I don't really have too many thoughts about that. I agree with you. I think that most Mormons who were typically conservative, who ended up not going for Trump, did it on more personal reasons with Trump's character and his history and the way he acted and talked. Which they found incongruent with their Mormon principles and basically Christian beliefs. So, I, I, but I do think that there is a, regardless of that, I think there is a point to be made that Mormonism is moving away from its conservative, leave it to beaver roots, and more and more Mormons are transitioning to a more moderate point of view.
0: Yeah. And one only have to look at who we looked at recently, which is Kwaku. And Kwaku is uh, very much for the church changing its LGBT policy. He said so on several occasions, he is also kind of at the forefront. The church has put him up on a pedestal to kind of be the PR guy or the, the face of the PR to the younger generation. And, and then I know, you know, here's a quote here, or Troy here says that TBMs I know do support Trump. It's my point. I think his data, the McKay Coppins, his data is, not being used appropriately. I know that studies came out after the 2020 election immediately happened. And the argument was that the data pointed to Mormons being the strongest segment still in support of Trump uh, in that election. So I'm not making the argument that TBMs have left the side of the Republican party or have left the side of Donald Trump as our president, but rather that that's the argument McKay Coppins is trying to make. Um, Okay. So now at the next quote, he starts to share some of the, things he hears or has read in the media at large about Mormons. So there is this quote first.
2: On MSNBC, Lawrence O'Donnell sneered that Romney's church had been founded by a guy who got caught having sex with the maid and explained to his wife that God told him to do it.
0: So there's that one. Uh, who's he referencing there, uh, RFM? Oh, uh, well, I don't know. Could it be Fanny Alger? It's got to be Fannie Elba. That's that's definitely who it is. Um, Yeah, very much so. And so he's trying to notify the reader of the Atlantic article that he's aware of some of the messy history. Uh, I don't think he's trying to argue that that's just some kind of false anti-Mormon statement, but that the media has some awareness of some of the historical issues that go on in Mormonism. And then he also shares uh, this one as well.
2: In Slate, Jacob Weisberg argued that no one who believed in such a transparent and recent fraud as Mormonism be trusted with the presidency.
0: And he's talking about Mitt Romney there, and he's pointing to another uh, gentleman in the news media that says essentially, like, if if you have a Mormon and the Mormons believe this crazy shit, they believe all this crazy stuff that's out there, then we can't really trust that person to hold the office of the president of the United States if they believe in this crazy nonsense. And so again, he's just trying to get us set up that the public, the outsiders and the media have a distrust of the Mormon story of Mormon theology of Mormon history And he's prepping us for what he's about to get into. Uh, Your thoughts on either one of those? Oh, just the Slate Magazine article, which is funny
1: because it says uh, anybody who believes so so recent and transparent, uh, a fraud is not worthy to be president. Uh, Apparently, only those who believe in opaque and ancient frauds.
0: Yeah, right. They're all myths.
1: Then they're okay to be president.
0: Yeah. Everybody thinks the other guy's crazy and nobody looks at their own theology, their own history. Uh, and, and figures out that it's a myth and has some crazy aspects too, right? Like the Amish think the Mormons are crazy, and the Mormons think the Amish are crazy, and we all think Scientologists are crazy.
1: Even back when I was uh, a TBM and an apologist toward my later years of apologetics, uh, it did occur to me that we're fighting amongst each other as Christians when actually we all share the single m- most crazy belief imaginable, which is that a dead man came back to life.
0: Yeah. After three days of being dead and his heart not beating and no breaths in his lungs. Yeah. When you share that, belief,
1: when you share that crazy belief, everything else is really kind of inconsequential, I think.
0: Yeah. At that point, Thetans isn't that big of a step, is it? Nope. <laughs> so um, from that perspective there of trying to get us to understand that, you know, McKay, uh, the author of the article, McKay Coppins, Uh, perceives and and realizes and is trying to share this general audience that the general audience does have some level of distrust for the Mormon story. He then, and I don't have sound bites for this, but then he he goes off and does this nice meandering back and forth, telling the Mormon story talks about the first vision. He talks about Joseph Smith growing up. He talks about uh, the book of Mormon coming forth. He talks about some of the aspects of the church and he really does it from a I'll say the same thing you did, which is the first time I listened to it, it felt like propaganda to me. And it felt like he was trying to tell the whitewashed, dominant narrative Mormon story in order to help his audience convert to Mormonism. And and that's what it felt like my first time through. Like you, when I listened to it a second time and a third time, I began to see that I think this actually was much more masterfully done and the intended audience may not be who we thought it was, when we, when we listened or read it the first time through uh, your thoughts briefly, I guess, on the way he articulated the Mormon story. And again, we don't have a soundbite of that for the audience, but your thoughts on, it really came off to me as a really faithful, clean version, Sunday school version of Mormonism.
1: Yes, I agree with you. I think what he leans, leads up to, and the whole point of reciting this story has to do with Mormonism and America. And how uh, it, it radicalized Joseph Smith, it says, when after being booted out of Missouri, after having tried everything they could in the state courts in Missouri to get redressed, because, I mean, this is a big deal. They have spent a ton of money and credit buying a property in Missouri. And then when they got kicked out, they lost all of this property because they can't have it anymore. And the people who kicked them out said, okay, it's ours now. So they're trying to get their property back and they want to return, of course, to build Zion, but, They can't do it. They can't do it. They can't do it. They end up in Illinois after Joseph Smith has been in prison for six months. 1839, he goes to Washington, D.C., because he believes that this is America. There's a First Amendment. There's freedom of religion. And surely, surely the president of the United States will give them redress. And he goes, he meets with Martin Van Buren. Martin Van Buren goes, "Nope, sorry, can't help you. And this is what radicalizes him. And it doesn't seem to radicalize him. Maybe the way, the way that he tells the story, there are different ways of taking these component parts and telling different narratives. And the way he tells the story is that what uh, Joseph Smith ended up doing was deciding that he would create a religion and a government that really was what America was supposed to be. That really embodied the American ideals as he saw that and protected people in their constitutional rights. And that's, what, uh, that's why he's got the Nauvoo Legion because nobody's going to protect him. So he's got to protect himself and protect the saints himself. That's why he comes up with the council of 50 as a secular government that he's going to create, that's going to have its own constitution. Um, So that's the way he views it. And anyway, that's the starting point of this relationship between the church and the government, which ends up finding fruition in the 1940s and fifties after the whole polygamy problem got resolved.
0: Yeah. And, and then after he gets done telling this Mormon story, Uh, He spends a little more time talking about how we Mormons are stuck and the institution is stuck on this double-edged sword, which is one, it has to hold some consistency and it has to maintain the things from the past, at least to a degree and not shift too quickly on the things that we told our membership these are forever doctrines. These are the truth. This is the this is the hard and fast stuff that is unchangeable, eternal, God's God's Almighty law. And the other side of the sword, the other side of that edge of the sword, if we fall the other way, is as you pointed out, trying to be accepted by the world. And so now we get into these these two sound bites. I'm actually going to play the Terrell Givens one first, where Terrell um, talks about how the church, no matter how much it moves, it moves so damn slowly that it's always playing catch-up. Here's Terrell Givens. And, and again, this is an audio version of the Atlantic article. So you're not listening to Terrell Givens' voice, but this is what the article has to say that Terrell Givens is quoted on.
2: It is now because Mormons occupy what used to be the center that they fall into contempt, wrote Terrell Givens, the Latter-day Saint scholar. Yeah, so it's this idea that the church is
0: always trying to find the center but by the time they get there, the center is 40 years behind them. And we've seen this time and time again with women's issues, uh, with race issues, with uh, being honest about history, with the LGBT issue in the present moment and the history in the present moment. The church is always moving so quick, or I should say, it, the church is always moving so slowly to get to the center that by the time it gets there, it's, it's no longer the center anymore. And you almost feel embarrassed. Like you're almost like, damn, that's kind of, it's kind of funny. It's kind of um, I almost want to chuckle at the church that they're constantly trying to get to a spot, but they never really want to hu- hurry to get there that by the time they get to the dance, it's moved. It's moved to the next neighborhood.
1: Yeah, so part of the deal is I think they feel like they have to move so slowly that no one notices that they're really moving at all because all the time they're
0: proclaiming, we're not moving. And they're always behind as they, you know, they never get anywhere. And, and it's always this game of saying like the world is lost. The world is fallen. The world is in sin, but wherever, whenever they make that comment, if you fast forward 40 years, that's where the church is at that moment. Yep. (laughs) And so here's the second quote. Um, This one has to do with trust uh, in regards to, let me just double check here. the, Uh, let's Let's just play this. Let me just make sure I've got the right thing. So, where are you hiding? Cultural cachet. Sorry, got the wrong one. Here we go. Cultural cachet. Play it. Here's the sound.
2: But then I met a theater critic in New York who had recently seen the musical. He marveled at how the show got away with being so ruthless toward a minority religion without any meaningful backlash. I tried to cast this as a testament to Mormon niceness, but the critic was unconvinced. No, he replied, it's because your people have absolutely no cultural cachet. Somehow, it wasn't until that moment that I understood the source of all our inexhaustible niceness. It was a coping mechanism, born of a pulsing, sweaty desperation to be liked, that I suddenly found humiliating. Huh. See, he, he has a light bulb moment
0: where he realizes the reason we Mormons are nice and we're famous for being nice. You and I were talking this morning about how nice Mormons are. Mm-hmm. Um, Mormons are are so nice. And we say like, that's just a product of the religion. That's what the religion makes. No, no, it is, but not for the reason we think it is. The religion is so quirky and awkward. And we feel so much embarrassment about, the things we're asked to do, the history that lies in the shadows, sharing the gospel with our neighbor and our family, that we are nice to try and compensate for how we're not acceptable to the outsider world.
1: Right. And this gets to a real big aspect of Mormonism. This was a light bulb moment for him. And uh, it was a light bulb moment for me as I really thought about it because I had to think, what does this mean? What are the implications of this? How does this manifest itself? And partly it's this idea of I don't know that we teach that. I don't know that we emphasize that we're not really going to stand up for our beliefs in public. We see other examples of this, such as, um, uh, well, the church, regardless of how you feel about their beliefs. Okay, let's put that to the side. The church has certain beliefs and certain standards at different times in history. But in 2008 we know what their standards were about gay marriage. I think it's probably the same today. Instead of coming out and saying what they believed publicly, they skulked around in the shadows in order to support Proposition 8 in California. And there was a there seems to me to have been an effort made to promote that to really uh well promote it, but to do the dirty work without getting the church's fingerprints on the crime scene. And even now when uh, uh, Elder um, Oaks, Elder Holland, I think Elder Oaks was uh, called about that when he was speaking at a law school recently. Uh, He said something about not one red, maybe it was Holland, not one red cent was spent by the church.
0: Yeah. Elder Holland.
1: Okay. Um, And then, you know, it's like, okay, well maybe technically, but you supported it with all this time and effort and volunteerism and lots of things that count as money if you convert it over. But uh, he wanted to try and distance himself from any involvement of the church when the church was up to its neck in it. That's what I mean by skulking behind the shadows. um, A similar thing happened, I believe, with the 2015 November policy of exclusion. Two reasons why that was so surprising to me. Number one is because the church had just spent the entire year making periodic public announcements about things that they were doing in order to support Uh, the gay community, the LGBTQ community. Mm -hmm. And they did that on several occasions, different legislation that they were backing. They made public announcements. But at the same time, they're working behind the scenes to insert secretly into the manual, which was not public at the time, insert secretly into the electronic version, this policy of exclusion. So you have the situation where they do, they say one thing publicly, but behind the scenes, they do something else that is very different from what they're saying publicly. So I think the church has this, um, this history and this track record of try of having certain beliefs, but not being out there about them to the public. Instead, they work behind the scenes in order to implement them while trying to present sort of a different, less controversial face to the public. And that's part of that being nice thing. And you're going to get onto this cachet. Uh, They have no cultural cachet. What does that mean? Well, I think it means two things. And the first thing here that we're talking about is that in order to have cultural cachet, you have to own your beliefs and you have to own them publicly. You can't be embarrassed of your beliefs and expect to have any cultural cachet. And it doesn't make any difference that they're weird. The public, as a general rule, uh, whether you let's, let's look at politics, okay? And it doesn't make any difference which side of the party you you are or whether you're a socialist, right? Like uh, Bernie. Bernie's a socialist. But most people have a grudging respect for Bernie, even if they don't agree with him at all on his politics. And the reason they do is because he openly acknowledges what he believes. He's not saying he believes one thing and then doing another when he gets elected. Right. So there is a big part of of humanity, I think it's part of the human condition, that we appreciate someone who's gonna stand up for what they believe in, regardless of whether we personally agree with it. It's called integrity, right? Yeah. And when you have integrity, that's part of this cultural cachet. And because of the Mormon's desire to be nice, to be accepted by the non-Mormons, which gets manifested in this thing we've been talking about, which is not really owning what they believe, they end up having no cultural cachet. I think. And I think that's one aspect of it. What do you think?
0: Well, I I think you're hitting it on the head, which is, and again, I think we've kind of said, or at least I said it before that, which is the church lacks, as you're saying, credibility. It lacks uh, acceptance in the world. It realizes it, both its leaders and uh, its members are having to be nice to overcome the distrust, to overcome the... Foolishness of how people perceive us to overcome lots of little pieces here and there, so that we can even have a seat at the table. In other words, if we come to the table with as with with less niceness, and we come just as everybody else does, nobody's going to even let us have a seat at the table. The only way we get a seat at the table is by being overly kind, by kissing a lot of ass, by pretending to be the nicest people on the planet so that people will put up with our quirkiness and strangeness. And, you know, you were talking about earlier, like I didn't want to share the gospel. I didn't want to go to my neighbor's house and give them a book of Mormon. I like that all sounds good and dandy when I was listening to the discussions as a 17 year old. And then I went out and tried to convert my cousin and my best friend. I tried to convert my mom and my dad. And within about two weeks of being excited about sharing the gospel I realized that essentially everyone was going to reject the message and everybody thought I was weird. My brother you know, would point to the South park episode and, uh, and tell me how strange that was. And I realized like there's some truth in that cartoon and damn it. Like our, our church has some weird history. We can't get a seat at the table unless we smile and unless we talk with our primary and relief society voices. Right. Unless we do this thing and unless I go like, Hey, can I help you with your move? Like, unless I went and put on this soft voice and volunteered to serve my neighbor and my friend at every point, I couldn't even get a seat at the table. And you and I were talking this morning, everybody wants a Mormon for a neighbor. Nobody wants a Mormon for a friend.
1: Right. You came up with that one. That was excellent. Everybody wants a Mormon for a neighbor. Nobody wants a Mormon for a friend. By the way, there is this other aspect which we do have to comment on and we'll do it quickly. You came up with it, by the way, uh, which is that it's not just about being nice to people uh, in order to be accepted, but there's also this other component in Mormonism, which is inbuilt. And as a Mormon for over 40 years, I will tell you the big secret in case you don't know, which is that by and large, the friendships that Mormons have with non Mormons exist for one reason and that is to convert, hopefully, the non-Mormon to Mormonism. What do you think, Bill?
0: He's trying to con- say that again. He's trying to convert the. Say that again.
1: Typically. I mean, it's in yeah. built in Mormonism that when we do nice things yeah. or are nice to non-Mormons, yeah. it, it, there's an ulterior motive every time. And that's to hopefully convert them to Mormonism.
0: Yeah, that, that's very true. So I was fully aware in our ward, whenever we did some, we came up with a cool event called Teacher Appreciation Night. We went out and we got uh, we did invitations. We had every kid in the primary and in the young men's and young women's um, nominate a teacher in their school. We invited these teachers in for one night. We gave some really uh, good talks. We had like two speakers. And the speaker stayed away from preaching. We just talked about how much uh, we value people in the community who serve our children. And then we brought each of these teachers up on stage and we gave them an award. The reality is we all knew, nod, nod, wink, wink. We all knew that we were doing it so that maybe by chance we could bring one of these people. If we could just bring one soul unto God, how great shall be the joy in the kingdom of God, right? Like if we could just bring one soul back to our heavenly father and we knew that when we send, uh, we helped our missionaries knock on doors. We send the missionaries out when we do anything that involved the public and not the insider inside the chapel. We knew that the end goal was, we hoped we could bring someone in the missionaries show up at the door and they go, I'd love to just shovel your snow. It's not for anything. That's not true. Let's be <laughs> honest. Let's be honest we do it for a reason. We do it hoping we'll bring people in. That's the end goal.
1: Can I tell you one of the greatest joys I've had from sort of disentangling myself from that missionary attitude toward other people is the joy of doing something nice for somebody else, simply to do something nice for somebody else without any ulterior motive.
0: Yeah. I do a lot more of that today than, than when I was in, how about you? Yeah, and it feels great. It does it? There's, there's no, no, agenda. Court. There's no there's agenda. There's no agenda no anymore. Anything. I don't give a shit. I don't care. I don't care what church they join. I don't care if they join, they leave. I don't care. And now I just help people, just to help people, and it feels so much better than how it felt uh, ten years ago or fifteen years ago.
1: So I want to compare really quick on this one point before we go on, just to make it clear Please. that. Uh, this really crystallized in my head when I was uh, this was many, many years ago and I was watching some Muslim leaders. Maybe he was an imam or maybe just a representative of a, a Muslim organization. And he was announcing what it was that they believed religiously. And he wasn't embarrassed and he wasn't hemming or hawing. Right. And he wasn't saying, I don't know that we teach it. I don't know that we believe that yeah. he was just saying it like it was from yeah. his point of view. And there is a power that comes from that. Now, I'm not a Muslim, but I will tell you that there was a power that came from his just saying publicly what he believed, cultural mm-hmm. cache, which he was gaining from that, with me at least, and I'm sure with others, that was not present when President Hinckley was saying, I don't know that we believe that. I don't know that we emphasize that or teach that. I don't know that we emphasize that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think it's very true. There you can tell when somebody really holds the ground they're putting out out from them. And you can tell when somebody wants to avoid a real vulnerable conversation. Just in the last few weeks, you and I have talked a lot about fair Mormon and how they, you know, they, they don't make it, they make it. So you can't see the upvotes and downvotes. They don't take live questions. They delete all the negative comments. You can tell who is comfortable stating their ground and can defend it and say, look, I'm going to hold this ground, whether you try to poke holes in it or not. And who really just wants to be a pretend version of their real self. Um, that's the kind of stuff that goes on um, from here. RFM.
1: It's like um, the late man. It says fake, 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 fake.
0: Yeah. And you can see it. You can see it. You can tell who the fake ones are. Um, the next soundbite, there's a little section here. And what McKay, uh, McKay coppins is trying to get across here is that Mormonism wants its membership to get comfortable with more change but that it's past rhetoric and it's theological and doctrinal s- uh, statements inhibit that progress. And so here's the first one on uh, doctrine and policy. And I'm hoping I can find uh, let me try here real quick. Give me one second. Okay. Uh, I've got a ton
2: of things I could say here. Please. No, but I don't necessarily want to get ahead of anything. Mormons like the say of that the church's Sorry. policies and programs it did that on its own. the core of the gospel. Do you hear eternal. that? But identifying that core can be hard. What do you keep and what do you jettison? Which parts are of God and which parts came from men? What's worth preserving in the endangered Americanism that Latter-day Saints have come to embody? And what's best left behind? These are the questions that Nelson faces as he tries to figure out what Mormonism should mean in the 21st century. And he knows he's running out of time to answer them.
0: Yeah, he's going to die soon and he's trying he's trying to move Mormonism to a more acceptable space. It has moved as it tries to get to the center and it's always late. It has moved faster in the last 5 years. With him at the helm since sometime in 2018, and with him essentially leading, I think, President Monson, who was uh, in certain stages of dementia and Alzheimer's and other mental uh, uh, challenges, that, that Nelson has had a leading role with the church for some time now. And as the church is trying to move towards the center, it has moved as fast as ever in the last five years And there is this balancing act of not upsetting the cart of Mormons who think Mormonism has been consistent and think Mormonism believes certain things. And at the very same time, President Nelson is changing the very things that we thought were unchangeable, that we thought could never move. And uh, Mormonism is a shell of what it was during the Bruce R. McConkie and the Joseph uh, Fielding Smith years, and it really doesn't even resemble the Mormonism of the 90s anymore. It's a very different Mormonism. The the 10-year-olds, the 15-year-olds, and the 20-year-olds, if we were to sit down with them and say, what is Mormonism? That would be a very different story from if we were to ask the 50-year-olds, the 60-year-olds, and the 70-year-olds.
1: Your thoughts. Right. And one of the important points he makes here, and this is going to get toward the the, the idea of who is this addressed to this entire article, really, um, is that he gives President Nelson credit because he says there's a lot of changes he's made. And some of them are inconsequential, like reducing church from three hours to two hours and focusing on the name of the church being the full name instead of the Mormon church. But there are consequential changes that he has made. And he gives three examples, one of which is mod- modifying the language of the temple endowment to make it more uh, let's, uh, female friendly, if I can put it that way. Yeah. And I think, you know, what I'm talking about a second yeah. thing had to do with. um, Well, a second thing had to do with uh, calling the first Latin American apostle and Chinese American apostle mm-hmm. in history. And then there was a third thing. Do you remember what that was? Uh,
0: I don't I don't remember which, what it was.
1: Um. What was something uh, of yeah. significance. In other words, he's doing things that are that are significant. I
0: think it was was it removing the policy from two thousand fifteen.
1: yeah, of course.
0: Which which, which he put into place, right? Like him and like we all heard the rumors behind the scenes that Nelson pushed the hand of President Monson into putting it in place in the first place, and it was Nelson who stood up and said, "This is revelation." And and then they have to come out in the back end and go, "Hey, it was out of love that we put it in." Oh, and by the way, it was out of love that we took it out. Uh, we're right. just mm-hmm. trying to be consistent.
1: He doesn't mention the first part. He does mention the second part. And that's because this is the thesis that he's developing, right? Yeah. My first thought was, well, to criticize him for not mentioning the first part, this is not even handed, but he's driving toward a point that there are significant things that President Nelson has been doing. And basically what he's he's aiming toward, I think, is that President Nelson is on borrowed time. He's already made some very significant changes within the last two, three years of his presidency. There's still time left and the door is open and he can make additional changes. And I think this is more of a hopeful piece that he will take this opportunity to continue to make changes.
0: Yeah. Here's another one that emphasizes kind of the same point. This is where they talk about
2: the crux. Kathleen Flake. One historian at the University of Virginia told me many of the church's concessions to modernity have been healthy and necessary. But it's like a game of strip poker, she said. How far will you go? The hard parts of Mormonism, huffing up hills in a white shirt and tie, foregoing coffee, paying tithes, might complicate the sales pitch, but they can also inspire acts of courage. Yeah.
0: So it's like strip park poker. How far will you go? I've got pocket aces, uh, RFM. What do you got? Hey, hey,
1: the deal is this. The deal is this. I mean, and this is the, the huge tension, right? How did the apostasy happen? Well, we were told, at least when I was young in the church, that it happened. Hey,
0: by, wait, wait, wait. Do we talk about the apostasy much anymore? We don't talk about
1: the apostasy We don't anymore. teach it. and We don't emphasize it. We do not. And there's a reason for it, I think. And it's part of a, it. It makes sense. Because the apostasy was the original church, the true church, accommodating itself to the world to the point where it lost its, its, its validity, its efficacy, its priesthood power, its covenants. Yeah. And that's what we are. And so that's the tension. How far do you go? How many articles of clothing of the true church are you willing to get rid of in order to be accepted by the world without going across that line of, you know, the apostasy line? Go directly to apostasy. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Yeah,
0: it reminds me of a man who told me that he owned the very axe that George Washington owned. And the only things he had replaced on it were the handle and the head. (laughs)
1: right so this is this is the tension this is the tension that's going on and really what we're trying to do here just so everybody knows because i've seen a a few comments what we're trying to do is understand what the um uh the message the multiple layers of messages in this article are um and really he's there's not a, a conclusion necessarily but it's exploring different layers of ideas one of these things about this incredible desire that mormons have to be accepted in Americanism, how that's playing out. And basically, how far is the church willing to go in order to be accepted by uh, American culture or non-members without losing what makes it distinctive in the first place? Because that's where it gets a lot of its
0: power. Yeah, we have to be a peculiar people. And and here, uh, President Nelson associates the good that's in the church with our Mormonism, with it being Mormon. Here's the quote.
2: I don't think you can separate the good things we do from the doctrine, he tells me. It's not what we do, it's why we do it.
0: But but RFM, if you can't disconnect the good that, Mormonism, that Mormons do from Mormonism's doctrine, then what is the other side of that coin? Nobody does good except for Mormons. Yeah, it's also that you can't disconnect the bad oh. that Mormons do from Mormonism either. So if we're causing trauma, if we're molesting kids in bishops offices, if we are manipulating people, if we're um, abusing people in various mechanisms and unhealthy behaviors, uh, if we make it impossible for someone to be both gay and Mormon, if we make, if we tell people that have a skin color, they were less valiant in the premortal life. If we um, tell doubters that their family and friends should disassociate with them, that's also a product of Mormonism too. If, if our good is to be held up and said, this is because of our Mormonism that we're good, then our bad must be as well.
1: Right. And later on in this quote, um, where the um, author is asking president Nelson about uh, gay people and what about them and the church's attitude and position on them and gay marriage. And president Nelson says that everybody has a place in the church. Now the uh, article doesn't say this, this is just for me. Um, Well, yeah, yeah, and black people had a place in the bus in Alabama in the 1950s, too. It's yeah. just that it was in the back of the bus. yeah, and that's the same place that LGBTQ people have in the church. They have a place in the church. It's just in the back of the
3: church.
0: yeah, and and they have to sit next to certain people, they have to uh, be in a certain space. Um, they can have to they have to follow different rules. they have to drink out of a different water fountain. Um, but they get to have water fountain if they so choose to follow the rules that we've set. Um, I want to play a couple more little bites. These are, and then we'll get into some phone calls from folks. Just play the conclusion statement, give some closing comments from you, and then we'll get some phone calls. This is the two quotes on um, race and the LGBT issue. And I, I think they're important to this conversation. So here's the first one on race.
2: Smith, who grew up in California and joined the church when she was 11, now lives in Provo, Utah, where she often hears white Mormons try to rationalize the church's past racism. And while she's seen hopeful signs of progress, she believes the church can't truly move forward without a show of complete institutional repentance. As part of a living church, I believe that an apology is necessary. So far, the church has ignored such calls, the fact that Smith attributes to fear. Yeah. What do you think there?
1: Well, she's absolutely right. By the way, this isn't obviously not Joseph Smith. It's just a, it's a black uh, member of the church uh, who is, um, whose last name is Smith, but um, yeah, absolutely right. And this is the other aspect of it. And by the way, I have got tons of stuff here and you're not going to hear most of it. You can breathe a sigh of relief. I've got Shakespeare. Oh my gosh. I've got CS Lewis. I've got Joni Mitchell. I've got a great story about me, which you're not going to hear tonight. So maybe some other time I'll, I'll bring it out in a different format. But the basic thing is this, is that uh, the leaders of the church are too busy pretending they're perfect. Okay, And this is the other aspect of where they have no cultural cachet. A person who is perfect has no cultural cachet. It's the reverse of what we, we would normally think. But time and time again, poets and prophets, not LDS prophets, have understood that it is is the the owning not only of your religious beliefs, but the owning of your human frailties and fallibilities and even your sins that gives you cachet. Because everybody knows you're not perfect. Everybody knows that if you're pretending to be perfect, you're faking it. Okay? And if you accept your... Um, your foibles, your your failings, and you announce them publicly, that's when you get cachet from people. Can I give you just one thing here? Please. Okay, this is from uh Tennyson, Alfred Lord Tennyson, his idols of the king. This is Guinevere talking to Lancelot about why it is that she cannot really love King Arthur, and it's because he's too good, he's too perfect, right? What she says is he is all fault who hath no fault at all. Mm. The opposite of mm. what we think he is all fault who hath no fault at all for who loves me must have a touch of earth. Yeah.
0: Like we're all flawed. Let's stop pretending that there's something perfect about us. Let's, let's start owning up to what we are and what we've done and let's be honest about it. And that's what makes a person appealing yeah. to us.
1: And then she finally says this, the low sun makes the color. Yeah. The low sun. Mm. it's good stuff by mm. the way i just want to say this okay because ether chapter 12 verse 27 a seminary scripture everybody knows it
4: talking about, strong.
1: yeah yeah i give unto men weakness that they may become strong yeah. that is always interpreted in my experience in mormonism as okay we're given weaknesses but we're made strong and when we overcome them okay yeah. i think maybe that's not what it means i think what it means is that it is the weaknesses themselves that make us strong when we own them, not overcome them, but when yeah. we own them, that's what makes them strong. And if that's what the, this verse means, I think it's a lot more profound than maybe I'd been giving it credit for before I started considering it in light of this Atlantic article. There's a few other things that I'm not going to talk about, but that's the main thing is that um, this is this is what the church leadership fails to understand is they're scared to death of being less than perfect, of apologizing, right? Uh, nobody can criticize them because they're above criticism. What they don't understand is that it is that position on their part that makes them unappealing, that makes them not accepted, that makes them not loved by the non-Mormon world. And what they don't understand is if they did the exact opposite of what it is, they seem hell-bent on doing, which is just uh, acknowledge that they are uh, weak, vulnerable, that they make mistakes and apologizing for them just like everybody else immediately the reaction, I mean, there, there are some ex-Mormons that go, aha, I knew it all along. But yeah. by and large, the reaction of the world is going to be one of acceptance and embracing them and an increased respect. And then they get the cultural cachet.
0: Yeah, but that's that's not the current behavior. That's not what currently goes on. Here's the second quote about race.
2: Though the church has never claimed prophetic infallibility. Smith says that for many Orthodox believers, the faith is either true or it's not, the church can't make a mistake, the church can't back off, the church can't fix something that's problematic. Mormon leaders are afraid that if they apologize for the racism of past prophets, she speculates, they will undermine their own authority. That institutional fear is a common theme in the church's response to a certain kind of activism. Though Mormons are encouraged to air their doubts and even voice dissent among themselves, church leaders have sometimes lashed out when dissenters start attracting external allies.
0: Yeah. So this idea that you know we've made serious mistakes, we've made mistakes on race, we've made mistakes on the LGBT issue, and are currently making them. We've made issue. Uh, we've made um, mistakes on. Uh, dealing with women and, you know, allowing them to do ordinances. And then now we take it away and we don't really handle social issues inside the church very well at all. And yet we have this said and unsaid, this implicit and explicit teaching that those guys, those 15 guys you just you just can't badmouth them. You can't say they made a mistake. You can't talk about the serious mistakes they made. We're not going to talk about the serious mistakes they made. They're fallible, but ask me what they did, and I can't tell you. Um, they have to be set on a pedestal. President Nelson has to be a prophet of God, and he has to have better access to truth than you have, than I have, than all the TBMs out there have. And the reality is those top 15 have made much more serious mistakes then the progressive Mormons, they've excommunicated all along the way.
1: Well, I agree. Lying to the membership on a regular basis is one yeah. of those.
0: Yeah. And, yeah. and Peter
1: Bleakley, by the way, whom I interviewed yesterday, does an excellent and brilliant job of
0: pointing that out and documenting that. Yeah, good. Check out Radio Free Mormon and the Peter Bleakley interview. Um, yeah, absolutely. The There's two more quotes I want to get to, then we'll play the conclusion. These two are on the LGBT issue. Um, the first one is on LGBT changes that are possible. Uh, so we'll play this one first.
2: When I asked him what he'd say to LGBTQ people who feel that the church doesn't want them, he told me, God loves all his children, just like you and I do. And... There's a place for all who choose to belong to his church. But when I asked whether the prohibition on same-sex relationships might someday be lifted, he demurred. As apostles of the Lord, we cannot change God's law, he said. We teach his laws. He gave them many thousands of years ago, and I don't expect he'll change them now. As we spoke, I noticed that Nelson... He's changed a lot of shit, hasn't he, God? This is the part where you're saying that nothing's changing while you're sort of changing things. That he's right. almost 100 when you're with him. He's remarkably spry for a nonagenarian and prone to enthusiastic tangents about the human body's servo-regulatory mechanisms. But he also seems to understand the risk of saying the wrong thing. So when he talks about the LGBTQ, community, he slows down and reads from his notes to make sure he is hitting every letter in the acronym.
0: So President Nelson seems RFM to be holding LGBTQ. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he's got right down. it down. Yeah, he's got to make sure he says it right. Right. I think I've got those reverse, some reverse, but I got them all there. So he there's this thing that happens in Mormonism that is bullshit, and I can't it, it happens all the time even in the midst of constantly changing Mormonism, the leaders keep telling you it can't change.
4: Mm -hmm.
0: Like he, he said, God, you know, God hasn't changed it thus far. And I don't expect him to change it anytime soon. Yeah. Uh, Mormonism is constantly changing. We said the temple ordinances can't change. We changed them. We said garments had to stay one piece after the pattern of which Joseph Smith set that he got straight from the Lord. We changed it. Um, Temples had to be a certain way. We changed them. Um, Certain kinds of priesthood had to be a certain way. And we changed it. Like there's nothing. Charlie Harrell's book. uh, This is my doctrine Mm -hmm. is a fantastic read to, for everybody to understand quite simply, there's not a single thing and I'll leave something out. There's not a single thing that God hasn't changed. Uh, No, no, there isn't. And that's part of the lie. It never changes. It It never never changes changes. while it's changing. Right. It just changed this week. Yeah. And it just, it it keeps on changing, but Mm -hmm. it's not changing. We said that, oh, we told you guys Brigham Young taught from heavenly father that people of color couldn't get the priesthood until all of God's white children had come to earth and attained a body and and gotten the priesthood themselves, and once all the Caucasians had been exhausted, then, then, in some future point, then those of color could have it. And then we just shortened Brigham Young's quote, and then we just gave people of color the priesthood, and said that Brigham Young prophesied this would happen. Yeah, it's a lie. It's all bullshit.
1: It's a lie. Uh. It is a lie. By the way, I was very happy with the new handbook that came out with a modification in the handbook where they actually came out and endorsed Radio Free Mormon.
0: Yeah, because they want factual information, and there's no better place to get factual information. They encourage the members free to go to
1: factual, credible, and reliable sources of information. Hello, here I am. Yeah.
0: Radio Free Mormon. All Tune free. in, everybody. Yeah, you are. A, <laughs> you are a church-approved source now. Thank you very and, much, President Nelson. And I wonder if they'll take fair Mormon off, because that's definitely not factual, credible, honest, truthful, transparent, reliable information.
1: Trustworthy, clean, brave, or reverent.
0: Yeah, yeah, I love it. All right, so here's the last one on LGBT, uh, the LGBT issue.
2: But although views among rank and file Mormons are evolving, the church has codified its teachings on sexuality as doctrinal. That means they won't change until the prophet says he's received divine permission. Thank you, President Oaks.
0: And yeah, and and that will happen when the church is so far behind Mm -hmm. that it has to get closer to the current center. And then by the time it gets to that current center and allows LGBT folks full access, it will be behind the center on lots of other things anyway.
1: Mm Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Okay. So with that, let's move to the uh, conclusion here. This was his winding up comment. And this is where you and I finally, with your help, you're the one who had the light bulb moment, figured out what was really going on in this article. So I'm going to play the conclusion. And then I want you to tell us what McKay Coppins was actually doing and, and what his motives were and who he was speaking to.
2: What holds the country together is its conviction in certain ideals, community, democracy, mutual sacrifice that it once possessed and now urgently needs to reclaim. If Mormonism has anything to offer that effort, it will have to come from a confident church, one that is unafraid of owning up to its mistakes and embracing what makes it distinct.
1: Mm. Yeah. The Two things right there, see. That's his conclusion, uh, his conclusion, concluding sentence, excuse me. Uh, It has to, number one, uh, own up to its mistakes, but still boldly claim what it is that makes it unique. Those are the two things, right, that we were talking about, breaking down those two things. But I think that what he's doing, and I can't say what's in his mind. He's not exactly pellucid in what it is he's doing in this article. But I think that what he's doing Is that he is trying to open up the way for President Nelson to be able to make additional changes that are um, more toward where the country is going so that Mormonism can continue to be, as the title of the essay suggests, the most American religion.
0: Yeah. And you made the argument to me this morning. I think it was this morning. Maybe it was yesterday, but I thought it was this morning where you made the argument that in the beginning, he's saying that Mormons are just, they're just so nice. And the reason they're nice is because they have no cachet and they have no credibility. And so the only way to get a seat at the table is to be nice. And then you made this, this kind of light bulb uh, observation, which is that perhaps McKay Coppins is being so nice in this article because he has no cachet or credibility with president Nelson, that the only way for him to nudge, nudge get president Nelson to go, Hey, like, I just want to nicely tell you, you've got to change a whole lot more if you're going to have credibility with the outside world and you're going to own up to your past mistakes, that he is so kind about the Mormon story. And he's so kind about president Nelson that when president Nelson reads this article about himself, He's also going to realize that here's this nice guy who seems like he's an insider Mormon, and he's telling me that we're not far enough along. We're not cutting it, and here's the reasons why. I'm going to have to move a little faster. And he he makes the point President Nelson doesn't have much time left.
1: Right. Just quoting uh, President Nelson. He also talks about the notepad that President Nelson says he has on the nightstand next to his bed with the implication. I mean, talking about waking up in the middle of the night and writing it down as God beams down the knowledge during the middle of the night which is i guess you know when god is up and the the implication being that the notebook is not full there's yeah. room for more yeah he doesn't he doesn't come out and say that you see this is why it took me so long to get what i think it is he's driving at is that that notebook is not full there is still time it may not be a lot but there is more time. By the way, one other thing, and please everybody start start calling line up on the, the, the many lines that we have. <laughs> I think we have one line to, to talk and I apologize for this. But there's this fascinating part. And this is the thing I clued into. The very first thing I clued in into this article was where President Nelson talks to um, uh, McKay Coppins and says to him, he says, you know, I don't have a lot of time left. Pretty soon I'll be having my own judgment day and I'll be standing before the Lord. And the thing that will be the most important And when I'm judged, is not the number of surgeries I performed, or uh, even how many members joined the church, but how I treated other people, and was I meek and uh, obedient and kind to other people. And I think he puts that quote in there to indicate that if that's really what President (laughs) President McKay President Nelson is is thinking is the most important thing, then that can encompass these additional revelations to be more inclusive of those who right now are marginalized in the LDS church. By the way, here's the big thing. The big thing that struck me.
0: Yeah. And I was going to say, before you get to that point, folks, if you want to call in, please do. And I actually just got one just now. Okay. So go ahead. The, the big thing
1: is that even when president Nelson says that he's being fake. And this is the thing that, that struck me when he says judgment day is coming. And this is what I think I'm going to be judged on. No, you don't, President Nelson. I mean, I don't mean to be rude, but I think you're being fake there because I know and you know that you've already received your second endowment. Yeah,
0: you, second anointing, second witness, Yeah, you, calling an election, made sure. You
1: already know. I mean, your judgment day's passed. You have been weighed in the balance and not found wanting. You are assured of celestial glory as long as you don't, I don't know, kill somebody or uh, deny the Holy Ghost. But no, you're not going to be judged based upon those things. You yourself, even as you're saying this, are being to some degree fake and you are playing the role of somebody who hasn't had their calling election mature and is actually thinking they are going to be standing before the judgment bar to actually be judged on what it was they did in this life. So anyway, that was just a, a, a thought that came to
0: me. Perfect. We, uh, we have Kyle on the phone, Kyle, uh, tell us what you're thinking here
4: on Mormonism live. Hey, so I just think it's interesting to see, cause I, like I've seen this trend in my family as well, where, you know, they kind of like my parents. So, you know, when I left the church, they were really hardball and didn't like it and didn't want to concede anything. And, you know, as more of my siblings have kind of left the church, they've kind of loosened up on this. And now they're, you know, they, they're more accepting of like, Oh, people can live other ways. And um, you know it, we don't always have to do exactly what the church thinks is right. Yeah. So I, I kind of see that, I, you know, with my family but also you know the church is also doing that but just at a much much slower pace
0: yeah it it doesn't have to do the very things it it kind of ascribes to yeah
4: yeah yeah
0: perfect my friend appreciate the phone call yeah of course thank you thoughts rfm
1: i think more and more over the past 40 years we've seen the church get out of the bedroom just as an example of its members And it came from proscriptions against uh, oral sex.
0: That didn't go over well, by the way.
1: No, no. There were not other people who were down with that. And so it um, ended up being something that they sort of backed off on. And then the whole thing about contraception, which was a big deal. And then they backed off of that. So, you know, there's still the issue with the underwear that they're pretty um, insistent on. But in a lot of main ways, the Mormon church has moved out of the private lives of its members to a marked degree from where they were 40 years ago.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And if you want to call in, please do. Uh, if you want to join, we've got a Facebook group, Mormonism Live. And there's I see every day there's three or four people that are asking to join. I think we're up around 130 or so right now uh, on there. Uh, also, there's mormonismlive.org. It's where you can uh, listen to past episodes uh, and kind of get whatever information on the show there. Uh, and we're sharing in a lot of places now. We've got, I think, five Facebook pages, a YouTube page, a Periscope page, and a Twitch page that this uh, live broadcast is going on. We've got 128 in the, in the uh, stream right now that are viewing. And it tells me that, you know, each of our places, it looks like the YouTube channel has the most. Um, but here comes another caller. Give me one second to take that. Okay, Great.
1: By the way, by the way, I was talking to a listener earlier today, and he wanted me to publicly chide the people at Fair Mormon for not taking live phone calls and doing live shows that he feels like they should be willing to do that, too, since they are obviously convinced of the strength of their position. So uh, I hope you're listening, Brad and Cardin and Quaku, and John Lynch and Scott Gordon at Fair Mormon that we think you should be taking live calls as well.
0: It would be great if they did. Here's our next caller. Uh, what are some of your thoughts, my friend?
4: Um, hey, Bill, RFM. Uh, my name is FW. Um, I'm a little late jumping on, but just weighing in on this subject matter, uh, I'm curious uh, what your thoughts are on what the church's path forward is assuming that the church is on a similar trajectory with the um, like gay marriage issue as they were with the um, blacks in the priesthood, and I think that's a common assumption among people in our circle. But uh, what do you think the justifications are potentially that the church could provide to the Orthodox members? Um, from a, you know the a theological standpoint, we have the Family Proclamation. Uh, do you think that there's a way for them to reconcile? that issue or i mean the other only other option would just be this sort of like disavowal type of thing that they did with the priesthood ban but it seems more complicated in this case and uh yeah i'm i'm wondering if you all you two could speak on that yeah give me one second i'll hang up with you and we'll respond thanks yeah thank you
0: so my my two cents there. First off, when it comes to the race, and the I'm going to go
1: get issue, another Coke. Okay,
0: please. When it comes to the race and the LGBT issue, I think they are different. I think when a a young black man felt marginalized in the church, that young black man could go back to his home, and he had a uh, an African American mother, an African American father, African American siblings, and they all were in the same uh, the same box. They were all in the same boat. And, um, that, that being able to go home and go like, oh, the church isn't nice to us is one thing. The LGBT issue is very different because the LGBT kid goes back to his home where his, uh, binary, uh, heterosexual parents are. And, and they're wanting to stick up for the church. They know the church is right. They know the church is true. And that kid doesn't have the support system what the church doesn't realize is it's losing a lot of membership, no matter what Quentin Cook says about the church being as strong as ever, it's losing membership. And these LGBT folks are folks who want to stay if there was space for them. But because we have an agenda to, to hold to something that's no longer really holds up, we're essentially kicking out the very people who want to stay Uh, When this church is claiming it wants to hang on to people. Now he asked like, what's the path forward? You and I, I think you would agree. The church is going to continue moving and shifting forever. It's going to continue trying to play catch up forever. A thousand years from now, if there's still Mormonism, it's going to still be playing catch up. Um, So Mormonism has to make a choice. It can appease its tithe paying members, which are the rigid binary black and white dogmatic TBMs. But that group is going to continue to um, get smaller and smaller. And I'm not sure that the other group is going to grow anyway. You look at the community of Christ, and they've shrunk a whole ton by softening up. But you can appease the tithe-paying members. You can keep those folks happy. And, uh, but then you become a very rigid, dogmatic church. You become a very hardline church that is deeply unhealthy. Or you can cater to the progressives faster, but then you're going to lose the tithe payers. And, and I, I'm curious. I don't really know. I think the church is trying to do both of them. And I think it's trying to appease one group over here and one group over there and different age groups. And I don't know what the church in the end is going to decide to do. Um, but it's going to be fun to watch the next couple of decades unfold because I think in another 20 years, you're going to know which direction they chose to go in. Whether they chose to be accepted by the world and become normal, or whether they cater to the tithe payers they have in this moment, risking losing the future generation of Mormons. Thoughts, RFM?
1: Yeah, I actually devoted a podcast to this uh, quite a while ago. I was Googling it while you were talking there, Bill. It's uh, Radio Free Mormon, episode 8. It was back from uh, March twelfth, two thousand and seventeen, called "The Amazing Contradicting Joseph Smith," and there I recommend you go back and listen to that if you haven't already, because it's actually I think is pretty good, if I do say so myself. But what it sets forth ultimately, it, it shows that Joseph Smith contradicted himself over and over and over again, and it actually frames it as a positive thing in the uh, the podcast that he was never he never felt bound. To what it was that he had revealed or presented as scripture. Um, He could go beyond that. And frequently that required reversing what he had said before. And that was necessary in order to expand the horizons and the breadth of uh, Mormonism. Okay. So having said all of that, I don't want to give that whole podcast right now. But the main bottom line is this, is that the church right now is so focused on being anti-gay. It has to be because it focuses on that strain of doctrine from Joseph Smith which they attribute to Joseph Smith about you have to be married in order to be in the celestial kingdom. Therefore everything else follows from there. And it's very much with this very literalistic um, idea about, well, then you have spirit babies, right? And so the entire work of uh, future plans of salvation is dependent upon the heterosexual sex act, which is an interesting thing when you think about it, that the entire plan of salvation and Mormonism is based upon the heterosexual sex act as it's understood today. But there's another strain that they can go back to, and I think that they should, and I encourage them to. That is the strain that the very last word that Joseph Smith ever said on the subject, both in the book of Abraham, 1842, and in the King Follett discourse, 1844, as well as the Sermon at the Grove, but mostly King Follett. The last word he said on the subject is that spirits are not created. They are not, they're not begotten. They're not created. They have existed forever. And he begins his plan of salvation in the King Follett discourse with God finding himself in the midst of spirits. And then seeing that he was more advanced than they were, he created a system whereby they could advance and become like himself. But the book of Abraham in chapter three is very explicit talking about spirits. They are no laum or eternal. There is no creation about them. He will say in the King Follett discourse. So there is no marriage to create spirit babies, according to what Joseph Smith said in the last word he said on the subject. And that is the other strain of doctrine that I hope the church will go back to, which is ready and open. It's a field wide and all ready to harvest for them in order to accept gay marriage, because there's nothing that Joseph Smith said. You would think that the last thing he said about it would be his most up-to-date view on the subject. But, the, all the church has to do is say, "Look, we don't know everything. God knows they say that at every general conference. There's so many things they don't know. We don't know everything. We think this is one way that spirits can be begotten. They can still stick with that. We say, but there are other ways, and there's spirits that existed forever. And Joseph Smith said this, so um, I think they should just be like the Marines and marry them all and let God sort them out."
0: Yeah, and and I'll talk here for another second, and we'll see if another phone call comes in. We'll take at least one more. Uh, If somebody calls, if not, we can end the night on this. And actually one's just coming in now. So give me a second. I'm just going to. All right. So um, RFM, my last thought too, is that on this section we're talking about, that leaders have spoken and said really unhealthy things. And I think sometimes the 15 grant this charity to the inner sanctum of that group and say, you know, Elder Oaks, you've said a lot of unhealthy stuff about LGBT folks. We're gonna do you the grace of letting you die first before we uh collectively move somewhere different. And then you have to be alive and embarrassed that you said a lot of things that didn't hold up. And so I think Mormonism throughout the ages has often, and I think it plans to do so now, often made space to allow these guys who have said the unhealthy stuff to die before the changes come about with with which those guys would have to, like Bruce R. McConkie apologize. Does that make sense, RFM?
1: Oh, it does. And also the church is locked into this management style of everybody in the quorum of the 12 and the quorum of the, the first presidency have to agree. Any decision they make has to be unanimous. And therefore, if uh, you know Elder Oaks is still alive and he says, no, I don't agree, well, then they can't make the change according to the way they have established the method of governing the church. Are you then, muted? Yeah,
0: yeah, And then the second he dies, then God can suddenly speak to prophets, seers, and revelators again. It's just amazing how this all works. Um, we we've got Roger on the phone. This may be our last call. We'll uh, we'll take Roger. Roger, what are you thinking here on uh, on tonight's episode of Mormonism Live?
3: Well, I just had a, a, a no a new revelation for the uh, prophets, seers, and revelators that they want uh, the uh, the. Revelation on uh, allowing men to uh, be married in the temple has already been given. Uh, it was given to Joseph Smith, and it was called the Law of, of Adoption. And it was um, part of the new and everlasting covenant of marriage, and it was an important uh, part of it. That is, men got maybe a happy br- half a br- brownie point for getting another wife, but he would get a full brownie point if he sealed himself to another man. Uh, that man um, was a conduit for the priesthood. The, the principle of a sealing was not done for sealing parents to children, but rather a ways for the priesthood to flow. And uh, this continued down to John Taylor, who stopped it. But Brigham Young had my great-great-uncle, John D. Lee, you may have heard of him at the Mountain Meadows Massacre, as one of his adopted sons uh, through the uh, law of adoption. Uh, And he had his uh, second anointing and the whole purpose so the priesthood could flow from uh, uh, Jesus Christ to Joseph Smith to Brigham Young to John D. Lee.
2: Mm.
3: And uh, if uh, if they wanted to renew that and bring up that uh, teaching of uh, Joseph Smith, you know, they could seal men together as uh, father and son. And uh, there would be temple uh, marriage for men. Mm.
1: That's a that's a great point. Roger, thank you. Oh, sorry. Yeah, that's a great point. There are so many strains and uh, interesting, radical ideas that Joseph Smith had, whether it's giving the women the priesthood um, in the Relief Society or developing a temple endowment, which actually does give both the erotic and the Melchizedek priesthood to everybody who goes through their endowment, the men as well as the women. Um, There are so many things that have been rejected and uh, discarded by the church that are still there, even in the ordinances that we perform today. So I think that's really an interesting point. By the way, Q is asking, do you invite apologists? Do you see that on the
0: yeah, I, yeah. Look at that. Yeah, absolutely. Apologists are welcome. I, I would love if John Lynch wanted to call in or Quake wanted to call in, I would ask that it be a cordial uh, gentlemanly or, or polite conversation. Um, but anybody who wants to call in male, female, alien, Bigfoot, anybody with <laughs> opposing views to what we're saying, uh, I would welcome it. And we would love if believers or apologists called in and said, look, you guys got it wrong. Here's what's going on. Uh, back to what Roger was talking about. Um, I want to just note that we already have other theological room as well. We're told the celestial kingdom has three partitions to it. There's three sections in the celestial kingdom, not just three glories, but the celestial kingdom has three sections as well. Nobody's ever told us who's in that middle or bottom section. I think some of those sections have been undefined. There's no reason why we couldn't say that uh, LGBT folks are in the celestial kingdom. And rather than have it be an up and down hierarchy, let's just have it be a side to side, different kinds of people doing the human thing in different human ways. There's no reason these guys couldn't uh, come up with a revelation and fit it into scriptural canon. But yes, we welcome apologists RFM. I, I'm waiting for the day that that happens. Cause I think I'm, you know, if we can get a call like that early on in the phone call section, we'll spend the whole evening with them. Sure. We'd love to have
1: apologists for dinner.
4: Yeah.
0: <laughs> So with that, I don't see any other calls coming in. I'm happy to just kind of wrap up here. Any closing thoughts from you, my friend?
1: No, um, I will tell you, let me think here. Was there anything brilliant that I had to say in closing in contrast to anything else that I said before this?
0: Everything Um, you say is brilliant, my friend. uh, That
1: is so very kind of you. Um, I think that I have said everything that I have to say. Um, Next week, we'll be on the air. And I will be I'll have the the burden of coming up with the subject matter for next week. I already have some ideas in mind. I don't want to mention them now because I don't want to get locked in. But I have some ideas that may involve um, uh, some stories about be, what's been goes on behind the scenes, because there are some inside jokes that we sort of put out there.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, like Stephen Smoot's nickname. Yeah. Um, uh, Bukkake. Stephen. It's a, it's, a, it's a
0: prayer name. circle of another kind.
1: And and I, I think that our audience deserves to know how it is that he came by that, <laughs> um, that nom de plume. Um, yeah, and so I, what we want to tell the story because it's a very interesting story, actually. And there are other things that were going on around it which involved Daniel Peterson. And I want to talk maybe about a little bit behind the scenes with Daniel Peterson and how he finally caved on Alma. And then... Uh, also, I would like to talk a little, just a little bit about Robert Rittner, because last week he had called in during the show. Do you remember that? He called in right. during the show and I didn't take it. Yeah. Some people are asking, well, why on earth was it that uh, why on earth was it that you uh, why? Why was he calling you, you know, and wondering what was going on behind the scenes? And I'll let people know what that was about. Um, so anyway, did you want to respond to Q who has another question?
0: No, I I think Q is the apologist. He doesn't want to give us a real name. He's just an initial. And that's fine. I don't have a problem with someone staying anonymous if they feel like something negative is going to come from them being who they are. Um, But if you want, I mean, next week, if if Q joins us next week, uh, we can start off uh, with Q having an opportunity to call. And if he does, then great. No, 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 no. No, that's
1: no good. That's no good. Here's why. Okay. And this is not out of uh, any desire to avoid Q. The reason why is because I'm going to spend hours preparing,
0: preparing your, preparing your thing. I'm not going to get
1: butted off by uh, anybody calling at the beginning or taking a phone call. And then all of a sudden we're going to have something else happen. Now, if anybody is a bona fide apologist who wants to come on the show, wants to uh, disagree with us or say where we're wrong, and uh, we can structure a show around that. Okay.
0: And we would be happy to do that. In Which fact, I'll give up mine. I'll give up mine in two weeks. In two weeks, Q. That's not fair. No, no, no. I'm serious. Q if reach, off the hook for coming up with some Q. If you'll reach out to me, private message me on Facebook. I give you my absolute word, I will keep your name anonymous, but you're gonna have to reach out to me. You're gonna have to set it up. And in two weeks, Q, I will sit down with you. And we will have a conversation about whatever in Mormonism you think we're just over the cliff or over the edge on, and you've got the truth. Uh, I would love that conversation. Uh, and we'll let RFM uh, do his thing next week and entertain us with with his insights on a certain issue.
1: Bill, can I ask you a question as long as Please. we're talking in front of the entire nation? Yeah, let's do it. What are you going to do when you set this whole thing up for Q or whoever to come on the show and be the show, and then Q doesn't show up? That's will happened to
0: you before, yeah. has it? I will have a secondary topic ready because I know how these guys work. And the moment the conversation becomes real or tough, they've got things to do and trips to go on vacations to be at other places to go. They don't have the time to put in, to talk to people like you and me once the conversation gets difficult. So I'll be ready with another topic.
1: Okay. Fair enough.
0: Fair enough. Okay. I'm excited. This is fun guys. Mormonism live. uh, Please again, donate help, help us keep this going. Uh, we'll just week to week bring up new things. Whatever is going on in the news, we'll talk about if there's some pressing thing going on. And there's going to be plenty of times for RFM and I to jump into doctrinal issues or historical issues and spend the whole evening examining those with your calls. And by the way, that's a big part of what we do. We really appreciate and love your interaction. You're, you're taking time to watch this live. You're taking time to to call in for those who do. And for those who are watching this after it's published the next day, thank you so much to each of you. Uh, we appreciate it. It's the same journey we're all on uh, on the second half of life here, is figuring things out and uh, and really understanding Mormonism for what it is in the world and uh, living our lives to its fullest. So thank you so much, R.F.M. Anything last from you? I've had a great time. I just want to wish you a Merry Smithmas.
2: A Merry Smithmas. It is December twenty
1: third. Sharon, Merry Smith- Smithmas to you too, R.F.M. Sh- Sharon, Windsor County, Vermont, December twenty third, eighteen o. Five, as i recall
0: yeah what a what a beautiful day in our nation's past 100 and war-
1: 215 years ago today it warms the cockles of my heart well, i'm glad you have some warm cockles okay have a great day thank you you too bye everybody yeah. have a merry christmas everyone